How is it possible for God, who is perfect, to love you, who is not perfect? And I'm asking that question of believers. I'm asking that question of brothers and sisters in Christ. And as soon as I ask that question, you may want to hop out of your seats and go, I know, I know. Because if you know the gospel, if you're a believer, you, you know so much about this. How is it possible that a sinner can be loved by God? But I want, I want to press on that for a, a moment. And just imagine with me a person that you might have a relationship with whom you wrong and sin against repeatedly Day in, day out, hour after hour, well, they do nothing but offer perfect behavior and response in reciprocation. How is it possible for a person who constantly sins against somebody else, constantly wrongs them, as we do with God, to have a right and peaceful relationship with him? Now, it is true that Christ dies for our sins and by belief in him, we can be forgiven of those sins. It is true that the Father casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. But I think that the answer that Jesus is going to give us to that question today is even better. We're going to open up John chapter 5. There's some things I'm excited to show you here from the end of this story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath day. We're going to get a little bit of an insight here into the love of God for the Son, love of God for us, and something about the nature of Jesus' relationship with his Father. So if you have John chapter 5 open, we're going to read through verses 19 through 24. I'll go back through and unpack a little bit at a time. But first, let me give you the setup. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he heals a man who had been lame for 38 years. The man stands up, begins to walk. Jesus tells him to take his mat and carry it home with him. Now, this all happens on a Sabbath. So when the ruling Jews see the man walk carrying his mattress, they get upset. Hey, you're not supposed to do that on a Sabbath. Well, he tells them, and they find out that actually this man was just healed, and that's why he's carrying the mat. The man who healed him told him to carry it. And so they go from being upset with the man carrying the mat to being upset with Jesus for doing a healing on the Sabbath day. And this is Jesus' first answer to them. He says this in chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. This is not our text today, but it's a setup to it. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this whole situation escalated quite rapidly. It starts with the guys looking at the, the mat-carrying man. Hey, hey, you shouldn't carry that thing on the Sabbath. Oh, I was healed. Whoa, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. Oh, it's okay, I can heal. I'm God's son. Whoa, blasphemy, you see? Boop, 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 boop. The temperature's going up, and these guys aren't having any of it. They understood rightly that Jesus' statement here was a divine statement. It was a claim of being equal with God. And they're ready to kill him now on account of this blasphemy. What follows next is Jesus' teaching on his unique relationship with the Father. As we talk about something so 
magnificent, so weighty, and even challenging to think of. I was comforted by these words from St. Augustine, ancient church father. He, He wrote this about difficult concepts. He said this, there are times when speech is deficient, even when the understanding is proficient. How much more does speech suffer defect when the understanding is entirely imperfect? Great. So even if you really understand something, sometimes it's hard to explain it. How much more is it challenging to explain if it's stuff that's out of your depth? That's how I feel a little bit today is preaching through this, but I'm comforted by the clarity of Jesus' words. So let's read through verses 19 through 24. That's where we're going to be today. I'll pray, ask the Father's help here as we go through this stuff, and then we're going to unpack it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Please help me to honor your word today as I seek to explain it. Give me the words to speak carefully of such grand and weighty things. Help me be clear and helpful. And Lord, I ask that you send your spirit. That those who hear these words would be able to understand what Jesus said here as much as we are able. And that it would aid in our love and our worship of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going back to that first verse in our section today. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, if Jesus were a mere man, if that's, he was just a mortal, if he was just like one of you and I, not fully divine and human, but just fully human, This would be a good time for him to quickly, if not fearfully, go on to explain what he meant about God being his father. Oh, oh, I I meant to say our father, not my father. And I meant to say uh, our father's working and we, we should work. It's a general, I'm a son of God, we're all sons and daughters of God kind of sentiment. That's what I meant to say. But Jesus doesn't correct their understanding of this at all. His claim was certainly intended to be unique. He says, my father, and I am working. And now here he goes on to double down on this. Remember, the Jewish authorities here had the, had the, had the authority to bring judgment on him in some measure for wrong beliefs, wrong thinking, and wrong teaching. And he shows fearlessness here. And what he's about to say is striking to his audience. Because rather than defend his claim to sonship, he first explains why it is that he was working on the Sabbath. So while significant, breaking the Sabbath is a lesser crime here than the claim to divinity, that level of blasphemy, okay? 
But rather than deal with that bigger thing that makes them want to go kill him, he actually moves on, doubling down on that point, assuming it to be so true, he doesn't even have to prove it, and instead makes an argument for why he's doing his father's work. And he says a few things here just in this opening verse. I'm going to disproportionately spend time in verse 19 over and above the rest. So if I get to the end of 19, you're like, well, that's going to take a while. We're going to spend most of our time here in 19, okay? I just want to show you a few things here. There's probably a lot going on. may even be over my head trying to see this, but I want to point out at least three things here I want you to observe with me and notice with me. And the first is that the son can do nothing of his own accord. The son can do nothing of his own accord. This means that he cannot do anything that is out of step with the will of the father. Some of your translations might even say, uh, the son can do nothing of his own or by himself. Some, some other English Bibles have translated this language that way. His work is the work of the Father. The implication of this here is Jesus saying, oh, sorry, Pharisees, you're not okay with what I'm doing. The Father's okay with it. See, that's what he's saying. The work that I'm doing right now I couldn't even do that work if he wasn't in accordance with it. It's okay with him. It should be okay with you. That's essentially what Jesus' starting point is here. It's okay with him. It should be okay with you. This is, this is a shameful starting point with these Jews. This is a mockery of them because he's making it clear, hey, God's okay with this. You are not. See, it puts them against God in the way he's talking about this here. In the last couple of weeks, I spent a significant amount of time talking about what I thought was the the main points being driven there, the legalism of those Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the ruling Jews. They were making rules about the Sabbath and about not healing. There's no law about not healing on the Sabbath, but to them, they couldn't handle it. They were beside themselves that somebody would try to do this, break their traditions, set himself up in some authoritative sense. They could not handle it. Here we see that on display again. Legalism, this won't surprise you, but legalism often disapproves of the very things that God loves. Legalism often disapproves of the very things that God loves. If you ever find your level of approval or disapproval being off from God's level of approval or disapproval, something needs to change, and it's not God. Okay? That's Jesus' starting point, super logical one here. Listen, the son can't do anything of his own accord. He can only do what he sees the father doing. That's the next part of this. Nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. This means that he cannot do anything that out of step with the will of the father, and here, if he sees the father doing it, he can do it. All the things that Jesus does are not only approved of by God, but they're actually the actions, the activities that are already happening by God. You know, sometimes when I'm doing yard work on a Saturday, I get all the kiddos together and I start commissioning them to do little projects. And they're still, most of them, pretty young. So the littler ones, I give them simpler projects. I, hey, uh, just pull these little weeds out of this weed bed here. Uh, Just blow, you know, get a leaf blower, blow this off, chop down that tree, that kind of stuff. I'm kidding. Little little, little stuff for the kids. Nothing too big. And we all, as a family, set out to do this work together. I'm on the other side of the house, mowing the lawn, uh, uh, using the weed whacker, doing the bigger stuff. And I make my way around the house, 
And occasionally, I'll get back to the other side, and this happened just a couple of weeks ago. I told them to clear off the driveway and to uh, pick up all the pebbles and rocks and, and everything. And instead, I found a pile of pine cones. I've got a couple of kids who are nature collectors, they call themselves. And so that's what they had, a nature collection right there. And I looked at it, and I'm the dad. I already gave them the, the, the plan of what to do. And I'm like, this wasn't on the list, collecting acorns and, uh, and, and berries and nuts and, uh, and, and collecting uh, pine cones from all over and having a little nature collection. Now, they had done a lot of the other things that I'd asked them to do, but this wasn't on the list. Little kids will sometimes operate like that. They'll do some of their own activities, even those they weren't asked to do. It's not how it works with Jesus here. His relationship with the Father is perfect, perfect and complete. He says, not only is the Son, I can't do anything that's not in accordance with the Father, but he also makes it clear he can only do what the Father's doing. He does not have his own agenda. Every bit that he is doing is what the Father is also doing. In other words, uh, in that illustration, if you were to show up to the house and see all the kids doing the work, you can know I'm also doing it on the backside of the house. We're all doing landscaping on that day, right? All doing yard work. The Father here is working. Think about what he's making a point here. They saw Jesus working. And if they didn't see the actual work itself, they saw the effect of it. Right? The guy says, hey, I'm walking now. I couldn't before. I was healed. And it's interesting. I didn't make this point before. They barely challenged that. Whoa, 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 whoa. You never walked and now you can? They didn't even do that. They just assumed, okay, miracle happened, and they moved to the next thing. Judgment on the miracle worker. It's crazy to think of how hard-hearted these guys were. They didn't investigate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me make sure this is even true. They knew it was. They saw the work that Jesus had accomplished. And Jesus here is saying that he's just doing what he's already seen the Father doing. If you're seeing work that I'm doing, it's the Father's work. He's doing it too. If you're upset with me for this good work on the Sabbath, you can just be upset with the Father because it's his work. The Father is working. Remember, that's what he said in verse 17. I am working because the Father is working. That's the whole point. Now, I did, I did cover this a little bit in, last, in, in the last couple of weeks. Remember the origin of the Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest? God created all of creation in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. All the work was done, garden finished, everything the way he wanted it to start, and he rested. And the whole point of that was not that he's tired. Oh, I just, I, I just need a break. It wasn't that. This was a six days of laboring for creation, and he rested from his creative labors. He's done with creation. But that rest is short-lived, you can say, because in the opening chapters of the Bible, early on, sin enters into the world and breaks everything. Corruption sets in. The law of entropy kicks off. The clock begins to tick. Things begin to go from, chaos, from order to chaos at that point forward. And now God steps back in. That rest that he was having is now activated into work. And he sets about his redemptive plan that he had established before the ages. Even before creation, the plan was set. Now it activates. And now God sets out to restore what has been broken by sinful humanity. That's what he's doing. In fact, that's what this infirmity was owing to. Remember the man 
was uh, uh, 38 years, couldn't walk. And I, I made the point, we, we don't know for sure what led to that. Was it a particular sin that made it so he couldn't walk? Was he born that way? It doesn't say. It actually doesn't ever make that point. But what we know for absolutely certain, not even a question, this man couldn't walk as a result of sin. Sin is at the root of every evil deed. Every disease, every illness, every sickness, every ounce of pain, every death is owing to sin. That's why this stuff happens. This is why believers get to look forward to a day where there will be no sin. Sin will be no more. Because if there's no more sin, there's no more effect of sin. Disease, pain, illness, death. All of that is gone as well. Jesus even pointed that out about this man. Remember, he said, stop sinning. Now that he's healed, stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. Why? Because sin always, always destroys and leads to destruction. So the Father, the Son, and as we'll see later in John, the Spirit, are working in perfect harmony together to restore, to redeem what has been corrupted by sin. And so Jesus says, I'm doing that. We've been working since before your great, 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 grandpa was a twinkle in his father's eye. We have been working to restore what has been broken and corrupted by sin ever since then. He's working, still doing that work, and so am I. You got a problem with that? You see, that's what Jesus is saying. And these Jews aren't having any part of this. So, two things he says right here. First, he can't do anything out of step of the will of the Father. And very related to it, he only does what the Father's already doing. Now, the third thing I think we see here might be the most important, might be the most significant. Jesus says that he can do whatever the Father does. Look at the language with me. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. It's actually stronger than saying he can do what the Father does. The language is really strong. Whatever, whatsoever, anything that the Father does, the Son also does. The Son does likewise. This is a huge assertion. He can do anything the Father does. Do you understand the depths of that when you think about this? No one else could say this. No one else could say this without being an absolute heretic. No one else can say like Jesus can say, the Father created, I created. The Father rules over all creation every moment of history. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yeah, I do that. The father feeds the sparrow, I do that. The father watches over the birth of the deer, I watch that. The father draws a line in the earth and says to the waves, come no farther, sand, stop there. I do that. The father directs kingdoms and nations and moves in history, I do that. The father answers prayers, that's me. You, you hear the claim that Jesus is making. If the father does it, heals, restores, helps, watches over, Jesus says, I'm doing that. This is an enormous claim. And now Jesus says why it is, why it is that the Father and the Son work in perfect unison. Why does it work this way? Verse 20, 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father works together with the Son in such harmony because of his love for the Son. In other words, it's not just shared interests. It's not, it's not merely a stoic uh, business agreement. Hey, you get something out of this, I get something out of this. Let's, let's unite and let's do this together. Stoic, kind of emotionless. No, it's not because it's in both of their interests. It's because of love. That's, that's the motivator here. The motivator for them working together in these things, that plan of redemption being set up in the way that it was to operate this way, love is at the root between the Father and the Son. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So quick question for you. How much of the Father's work does he show to the Son? All of it. All of it. Why do you think he says this here? There's no work the Father's about the Son knows nothing of. It's never like, that's Dad's workshop, don't worry about what goes on in there. No, no, no. All the work the Father does, that Son knows of. Why? Why is it important? I suspect this is just another one of those helpful guardrails to keep us from thinking erroneously. Somebody could make the case in the verse prior to this. Well, Jesus says he, whatever he sees the Father doing, he does. Well, what if there's stuff he doesn't see? What if it's, you know, in his earthly life, he doesn't have any access to that. He's not quite sure about those things. So he just does a part of what the Father's work is because he's not seeing that other stuff. Well, if that were the problem, if that were an error that could come about, you see this verse fixes that, right? This is the guardrail, so that couldn't happen. He's shown him all that he himself is doing. And for the record, you ain't seen nothing yet, Jews. In fact, as Christians, we're reading through this right now. As we've gotten to this point in the, in the passage, we've gotten to chapter 5, we ain't seen nothing yet in John. That's why he says, greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Greater works. You think... You think this is the great work? Huh. Greater works are coming. Greater works. Now, what kind of greater works is he talking about? Salvation. Salvation. Salvation is greater than the healing of a man's legs. Salvation is greater than, uh, than knowing a, um, a woman's past sins without having talked to her. Salvation is greater than turning water into wine. Greater things are coming, he says. And how can we know that's what he's talking about? He's talking about salvation. Well, because look at the next verses. Look what, look what it says next. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So the Father raises the dead and gives them life. To be sure, he's creator. He, goes, he speaks things from non-existence into existence. That's true. From, from death to life, from a lack of health to health. Uh, on occasion, even in the Old Testament, he literally, through prophets, rose people from the dead, raised them from the dead. Yes, that happened. And Jesus, of course, will do that too. But Jesus here is not merely talking about physical life and death when it goes on to say, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This passage makes it very clear. He's talking about eternal life. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
This is a special kind of, he's going to get into two resurrections, resurrection to judgment, resurrection to eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about, salvation. That's the real, giant, magnificent, amazing, greater work that he's talking about. Salvation's greater than healing. Don't miss that. I suspect you know that, but we need life for the soul, eternal life, far more than we need any bodily healing. Jesus' healing of the man's legs was simply to show his power and authority to do that in a much greater sense. If that was the greatest work, he should have stayed right there by that pool and healed everybody. Why is it that Jesus would only heal one of all the people at that pool? That's what was there, if you remember a couple weeks ago. Pool full, maybe hundreds of people surrounding this to hope that they could get healed by some superstitious belief of bubbles and angels. They were hoping that they could be healed. If Jesus was to do the great work of healing, why did he walk away? Jesus, don't go anywhere. Stay right there and heal. Because he was going to a greater work. To heal in a far greater and more eternal way. Look what he says in the next couple of verses. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, uh, this can either be seen as contrary to what God just said. If I'm doing it, the Father's doing it. That's what Jesus said. But we're working together here. or Because he, that seems like he's saying something different. Oh, there is this one work that I do that he doesn't do. You see how that would be a contradiction? I don't think that what Jesus intends to say is, oh, I forgot to tell you, there is one work that's just mine that's not a part of the Father's work, categorically not part of what he's doing at all. I don't think he's meaning that. I think he's meaning this judgment in the same sense as it says in Romans 2, 16. On that day, end times day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. See? So God, the Father, judges by Christ Jesus. So I think it's the same thing Jesus is saying here. It's not that the Father does some judgment and then just writes up a list and gives Jesus a hit list. Hey, go, go take care of these guys. They're the ones I'm judging. Oh, okay, got it, I'll go. Nor is it that he writes down those who are saved, go, hey, go save these ones, and Jesus goes, okay, this is it. It's a perfect work together in unity and unison from beginning to end. There is no category of work that is taking place that is not in perfect unity. Father, Son, and we'll, again, we'll see later, Spirit. Here it's focusing on Father and Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the fact that judgment comes through the Son is meant, at least in part, for us to see that honor goes to the Son and not just to the Father. In other words, if judgment came just from the Father and the Son had no part in it, and we'd stand before the judge at the end, we'd look to the Son and be like, I don't need to talk to you. You're the one, Father. No, I, don't need, I don't need him here. But because it's an act that they both operate in together, that same honor due to the Father is granted to the Son. And in like manner, whoever does not honor the Son, that's a proof there, they do not honor the Father who sent him. And why would that be so cutting for Jesus to say right here? For the obvious reason. These Jews do not honor Jesus. They're saying that they honor God. 
Oh, we honor God. We honor his law. We honor the Ten Commandments. We honor the Sabbath. And this guy is not honoring the Sabbath. He's like, you don't even honor God. You don't honor the Father. This isn't honoring to him. And the proof of that is you're not honoring me. If you don't honor Jesus, you don't honor the Father. If they knew God, if they loved God, if, they, if that was real, they'd recognize his son. They'd recognize, there's something, there's something in this guy. This is of God. This is good and holy and righteous. And they couldn't even see it because they didn't love the Father. They didn't honor the Father. And that's why Jesus says that. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. If you're not a believer here today, this is what we want for you. We want eternal life for you. We don't just want a cleaned up temporary existence. We don't just want for you to stop your little pet sins that you're struggling with. That's not our highest priority with you. We want for you to hear Christ's word and believe him who sent him. That's what we want for you. And what do you get? Eternal life. That's what we want for you. Eternal life. You see, this perfect Christ, who is in a perfect relationship with his Father, deserving no judgment whatsoever, is about to get, in just a few short months after this passage, is about to get absolute torturous crucifixion death. Judgment to the max. Why? Not for himself, but for all of those who sin and believe on him that their sins will have been paid for in perfect Christ. We want you to repent of your sins, stop looking at anything else to be your savior, as anything else to be the object of your affection, turn in faith to Christ, believe on him, and what will you have? Eternal life. All of your sins paid for, all of your sins forgiven in Christ Jesus on the cross, washed away by his blood. And just as he was raised to eternal life, you too will be raised to eternal life. And look at the way that he talks about this here. Judgment is gone. It's past tense. Not, and someday, if you hold on really well, if you don't sin really bad again, if somehow you, you persist in all of your strengths, someday you too can attain eternal life. No, he talks about it as a present reality. Whoever believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment future. He does not get that judgment then but has passed from death to life. That part's done. I want to close today just with two points of application that I think are coming right out of this text. And the first one is what I think the most unmistakable point of what he's been saying so far, and that's this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God, not the Father. Jesus is God. We're talking about Trinity. Fully God, fully man. And in this gospel, John has laid the groundwork for these grand claims of Christ since the very first verse. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. I'll make sure that we understand that's Jesus who put on flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. 
The word was with God and the word was God. Why did John do that right out of the gate? So that when we got to passages like this and we're reading through this miracle working dude, we get to this spot, we don't go, what? No, he's been prepping us for this all along so that we know this is the creator, the son, eternal, part of the Godhead. Whatever attributes we know to be true of God are true of Jesus. And I know we categorize different types of attributes of God, but if you see something true of God, divinity, it is true of the Son. We use awesome words. You know, in history, we've invented words to describe the attributes of God. Words like omnipresent means all presence, that God is not bound by space or time. Omnipresent. Uh, we use words like omnipotent, all-powerful. Words like omniscient, all-knowing. There's nothing God doesn't know. He doesn't have to learn. He can't forget. It's not as though when you ask him a question, he has to go, oh, I've got that somewhere, and runs back into his library, pulls the book off, dusts it, and goes, let me see, it's somewhere in here. Ah, here it is. No, no, no. Instant recall, known eternally, all-knowing. That is true of God. It is true of Jesus. Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. Jesus is these things. The effects of this verse are massive, are massive to us. Here's an example of this. So many things can be drawn out of this. Let me just give you one for today. This means that Jesus gives us all, right now, all of his undivided attention. I want you to think about that. This is one that I've been reflecting on. I feel like the Holy Spirit just like pressed this on my heart, especially in this last month or so of life, maybe almost six weeks. I just wrote it down on my journal at some point, and it just keeps coming back up. I just keep being reminded by this. If I've met with you over something over the course of the last month and a half, you may have heard me encourage you in this as well. The omnipresence and the omniscience of God, the effect of, the result, the necessary consequence of that is that you get his undivided, undistracted, all-the-time attention. All the time. It is not as though you have to call God and then wait for the ringtone. Maybe he'll be there. Nope. It's not as though you, you send the text kind of like you would to a friend and you see the three dots waiting for the reply. Ah, come on, anytime. Undivided. God is not distracted. He's not busy with other things. He doesn't clock out at the end of the day, hey, let's, uh, let's do this again tomorrow. He doesn't have somewhere else to be. This is amazing. You get his undivided attention. You know, one of our favorite passages as Christians, especially missional Christians, Christians at a church called the Mission Church. We love the Great Commission passages of the Bible. Matthew 28 is probably our favorite, the most famous maybe. Verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says at the very end of his life and ministry, after his resurrection, the final verses of the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. But that's not where he ends. He has one more thing that he says there in the final words of Matthew's gospel. Do you remember what he says next? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that awesome? I am with you always to the end of the age. That is, that is not, I'm thinking about you. 
well wishes coming your way, I'm there. I'm there. I'm with you. Brothers and sisters, the effects of this are just mind-blowing to us. You have problems, issues you're dealing with. You're, you're, you're needing uh, the Lord's help, giving you wisdom or guidance or comfort or peace. You don't have to wait in line and get a number. He's present with you in that at all times. Undivided, undistracted attention. If there's that little nitpicky thing, that issue that you've got going on at work or at home or in a marriage or between your kids or, or, or with, with a friend that you're, you're struggling with something, he knows every single detail, every tiny little bit of that. Every question you ask him, he doesn't have to go, wait, uh, I don't, let me remember my notes. Go back. What, that was, what happened then? And, you know, at the end of the day, I, my wife and I, we love to catch up. And so I usually get home in time for dinner, and then the family eats, and as soon as dinner's done, we send the kids to go clean up, and we've got like kind of six categories of things to get cleaned up. That's why we had six kids, so they can clean our house for us. We sent them to all the cleanup, and then Laura and I go to uh, spend some time in the other room just kind of hanging out together, just talking while the hubbub of cleaning is going on, maybe sit on the deck or something, so we can get some eye-to-eye, face-to-face time. And what do we do? We revisit our day. We talk about the details. We say, hey, so how did that meeting go? Hey, how did that phone call go? Hey, what happened? To... And we walk through all those things. And then we hear each other's thoughts on them and, and opinions on them. And we, we hear each other's heart. And it's filled with question asking. Because I'm asking her questions about her day. And she's asking him about my day. Well, what did he say next? And what did she do next? Listen, as wonderful as that is, it, it really is wonderful to have that. The relationship that we have with God is so much better. He's not sitting there going, hey, tell me about your day. What happened? As though he doesn't know. He was there with us in every single moment. I can't impress upon you how awesome and amazing this is. When you cry out to God, when you pray for him, it's not calling his attention to something he's not already given you. It's not that if you shout louder, beat your chest harder than, oh, 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 there's something really serious I need to look to. No, he's there with every single bit. And second, second note, point of application here is that the love we receive from God is the love of a father to his only beloved and perfect son. I asked at the beginning of this sermon, how is it that the father loves you even though you're a sinner all the time? And there's ways we can answer that that'll be gospel true. But what I want to press upon is this particular point here. The father and the son have a perfect relationship, right? Perfect son, perfect father. Is there any breach in that relationship whatsoever? Is there any bit in which, well, they both wronged each other that one time, but they forgave, they got over it? Nope. Flawless, perfect, absolute unity in every way with each other. Uninterrupted love, grace, relationship. If you are a believer, that's the relationship you get with God. How? Because you relate to the Father in the Son. That's how. I wanted to read for you all of Ephesians 1 and 2 today, but I'll just give you a little little part of it today. Just a little bit that shows us all over again. If you want... If you don't have something specific in Bible study this week, open your Bible, read Ephesians 1 and 2, and circle every place that says, in Christ, in him, in him, in him. Everywhere. 
Let's read a little bit of this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We weren't made alive apart from Christ. We were made alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, not separate or apart from him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're seated next to the Father at his right hand in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, the love that God the Father has for you is not like the love he has for his son. It is the perfect love that the perfect father has for the perfect son. Because you and I, as believers, are in Christ. The prime, ultimate, chief love that God has for believers today is not the love for sinners. The prime, ultimate, chief love God has for you is the perfect love he has for a perfect son. No interruption, no question, no qualm, no, uh, none. When he hears your name and he turns to look to you, he sees his perfect son. And that's the way that we relate to the Father. This is why, while it sometimes seems like highfalutin theology, it's so important to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son because that's the way in which the Father gets to relate to you. And praise be to God for that. This morning, we're going to share communion together. Communion is a reminder all over again about the peace that we have with God, not because of our own works, not because of our own worthiness, but because of the perfections of the Son that have been transferred to us in His death. We're going to take of uh, these two elements in a moment that represent the body and the blood of Christ, His broken body, His shed blood. And what those are going to be is a, a reminder of His death. He died, so we don't have to. We get the perfect life that He earned he gets the death that we earned, and now we have the perfect relationship with the Father because of it. If you're a believer today, and your salvation rests solely on your trust in what Christ has accomplished on the cross, not in your works, not in your, not in your activities, not in your behaviors, not in what you've stopped doing or started doing, not in your worth as a creature, the fact that you're made by God, but only faith in Jesus Christ, then you, as a brother or sister, are welcome to come forward and partake of the meal with us. I'm going to pray to open our communion time. You can come forward, grab the elements, uh, take a seat, and then we'll sing together before we partake together. Let's pray. Lord, please be with us this morning as we share in communion. Remind us of the perfect love that you have for us, not owing to us, so that when we have hard days, when we sin against you, when we fall, uh, fail and error, that we won't allow that lie to come in, that now we cannot have peace with you. Father, we get to appeal all over again. We get to confess and be forgiven. We get to go right back to you in full restoration, absolute connection with you. Lord, and it's not because of anything we have done or will do. It's only because of your son. Teach us these things. Help us to hold fast to them. Lord, as we partake of communion as a community this morning, I pray that it would draw us together with one another. 
as we discern the body, and would also draw us to you. So please do this as we partake in Jesus' good name. Amen.